that as well. But this morning we are continuing in Luke chapter 12. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7 and we saw that Jesus warns his disciples about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, as we saw, is an inconsistency between that which we present on the outside and who we truly are on the inside. It's inconsistency. Hypocrisy is also wanting the benefits of godliness without actually being godly, without actually committing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. We saw last week, according to verse 4, that hypocrisy is fueled by fear of man. And fear of man is giving the thoughts and the opinions of others the primary place of influence in our mind and in our heart. We also saw that the antidote for hypocrisy and fear of man is, verse 5, fearing God. So Christian living means learning to give God and his word the primary place of influence in our mind and heart. That's what it means to fear God. We also saw, and Jesus was quick to point out in verses 6 and 7, that there is a gentle comfort, a gentle rest that we find in fearing God. Lest we think that living in the fear of God, as I said last week, is sort of like Bell living in the beast's castle, just fearful all the time, we discover, and Jesus makes it plain, that there is a gentle rest that comes in living in the fear of God. And Jesus reminds us that we are worth more than many sparrows, and God has his eye on every single sparrow. So now we come to verses 8 through 12. And Jesus is continuing the same conversation. The crowds are pushing in. He's primarily addressing his disciples, and he gives them kind of three spheres of influence or, or three ways in which the fear of God plays itself out in real life. Three applications of what it looks like to live in the fear of God. The first comes from verses 8 and 9, and it involves our public witness. Our public witness. Look at verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Of God. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? If we acknowledge Jesus before men, he will acknowledge Jesus before the, or Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father. If we deny Jesus before men, Jesus will deny us before the Father. But this is one of the places in the Bible where it is really helpful to interpret the unclear by the clear. Because if we take verses 8 and 9 on their own, you might be tempted to sit here this morning and think to yourself, wait a minute, I think somewhere back in fourth grade, there were some kids on the playground, and someone asked if I was a Christian. And because I was embarrassed or because I knew how they treated Christians, I said, no, I failed to acknowledge Jesus before men or before little men, right? And therefore... I am now doomed because the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will not acknowledge me before the Father. Is that what it means? And I'm arguing this morning that that's not 
this means. That if you have denied Jesus at some point in time, you are not without hope. Just think about Peter. Remember how Peter denied, not once, not twice, but three times he denied that he knew Jesus. So Jesus is arrested. He's in the process of standing trial. Peter's following along at a safe enough distance where people won't ask any questions. It can kind of blend in with the crowd. And three different times he denies Jesus Christ. Jesus, that guy, I don't know who he is. I'm not one of his followers. Like, Jesus, never heard of him. Oh, that guy? Yeah, I don't, I don't know him. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus has this encounter with Peter that John 21 records. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus does not give up on Peter. In fact, as you can read in the book of Acts, Jesus establishes his own church on the teaching and the ministry of Peter and the other apostles. And so if you have ever denied that you follow Jesus, if you have ever pretended that you're not a Christian, there is hope. It is not the end. You are not destined one day to be denied before the Father if you repent, if you trust, if you acknowledge Jesus, if you believe. Jesus, the point he's making here is important. Jesus is teaching that we must confess and acknowledge Jesus in order to be acknowledged before God. This is why there is a public element to turning and trusting in Jesus. I mean, did you ever wonder, of all the things that that God could have used to symbolize life transformation and saving faith, he chooses to use the waters of baptism. When men or women, as we saw last week even with Genesis Pavan, stand up here and testify to the fact that while they were once in sin, the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood for them. They trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are now his children. And then enter into the waters of baptism, publicly declaring, publicly signifying that they are now the children of God. It's like signing day at the NFL draft, right? Putting on the jersey. This is the team I am now a part of. You may have noticed, in fact, that everyone Jesus called to follow him, he called publicly. Following Jesus is not a private religious routine. It's not the me and Jesus thing that no one else needs to know about. Rather, 
It's a public commitment to change allegiances. It's a public declaration, both in baptism and as we live out our daily lives, that we were sinners without hope to save ourselves from the God who made us. And yet, by grace, God provided his son, Jesus Christ, who lived without sin and willingly chose to die on the cross in our place for my sin. And through his sacrifice, through his life and death and resurrection, I am now forgiven and I am now made new and I am now changed and adopted. And you might be thinking, well, what about if I already was a Christian and maybe at some point in time, maybe even just last week, maybe even yesterday, maybe even this morning, I tried to pretend like I wasn't. Kind of denied with my actions or my words or my lack of words that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What then? And again, I think this is where we need to remember that Peter was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood Jesus' identity already and believed in Jesus already, and yet he denied the Lord. And which means our way forward is the same. We ought to repent of fearing man so much and God so little that we would deny Jesus, that we would not be bold for our faith, and then follow Jesus. There is hope, there is forgiveness, there is the grace of God. It's interesting that so often our denial is rooted once again in fear of man. It's it's amazing how often that comes up, doesn't it? Maybe even this last week as you've been going through the week and you've kind of had the text from last Sunday's sermon ringing in your ear and you just kind of see all of the ways. Oh, there's fear of man again. Oh, there's fear of man. Man, I am just so fearful of what other people think and their impression and what they will say and what they will do. I think so often though our Our fear of man is rooted in unbiblical and therefore unrealistic expectations about what the Christian life in this age is like. The Bible gives these glorious promises of what life will be like in the life to come. Paradise. The uninterrupted presence of God. No more sorrow, no more fear, no more worry, no more pain, no more hurt, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more rebellion, no resistance in our relationships, no resistance to Christianity. But all of that is promised where? In this life or in the life to come? In the life to come. And in this age, we are told by Scripture that we should expect suffering. We should expect to not be liked sometimes because we are Christians. We should expect that our public testimony for the cause of Christ will at times be misunderstood, will at times even be hated. Jesus himself tells us plainly in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, Notice, he doesn't say if the world hates you, it's because you're doing something wrong as a Christian. Christianity is all about how to win friends and influence people. It's how to be liked. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
In other words, that's to be expected. Take heart. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. You see, when we come to adversity or suffering for the faith, and we have been expecting it, I think we are less likely to cave to the fear of man and more likely to continue to fear God. Because we know this is, this is just to be expected. It doesn't mean we like it. We like suffering. We like hardship. We like to be misunderstood or mistreated for the Christian faith, passed over for job promotion or talked, to behind, talked about behind our back. But it means we've come to expect it because Jesus tells us to expect it. So you're in conversation with someone who can't believe those evangelicals who are opposing a woman's right to choose. And yet you know that the Bible is very clear about the sanctity of life, that life begins in the womb, knit together by the very hands of God. You're wondering, well, if I speak up, if I say something, if I, if I try to offer a counterpoint, if I try to address this, what will they think? What will they say? What will the others that they talk to say? Or someone reads your social media feed and then they ask you the next day in the locker room or they ask you the next day in class or they ask you the next day across the fence. You're not one of those bigoted Christians who think that marriage is only between a man and a woman, right? Like, okay. No, no, I'm not one of those. But you know, okay, the Bible is clear that that marriage is created and designed and blueprinted by God himself as this amazing gift to his people. One man and one woman. What do I say? What will they say about me? What will they think about me? What will they tell other people about me? Or you're reading your Bible over lunch at work or over coffee and someone says, you don't actually believe all that made up stuff, do you? You see, adversity for the cause of Christ comes in lots of different ways and in lots of different degrees. But being a Bible Christian means that we should expect it. We shouldn't think, wait a minute, I must be doing something wrong. Like they should be coming to me and saying, Aren't you a Christian? Please tell me about this Jesus that you serve. That may happen. And praise Jesus when it does. But Jesus also tells us we should be prepared for suffering. We should be prepared for others not speaking well of us. In fact, Peter would write later when he writes 1 Peter in chapter 4, he would say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says to us today, don't be surprised when adversity comes. Don't be surprised when trials come. Don't think that it's something strange or alien to the Christian experience. In fact, you should rather rejoice Peter says, rejoice because you are now sharing in Christ's sufferings, which means that when Christ appears, your joy will be even greater when his glory is revealed. Because when you are insulted, you can delight in that because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. The suffering doesn't take that away. Ridicule doesn't take that away. Then he adds here in verse 15, I think as a caveat, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, if you're just being an idiot, like abrasive in your faith, obnoxious to other people, unkind, uncharitable, unloving, angry, and you suffer in that way, that's not what I'm talking about, Peter says. And yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as a little Christ which is what Christian means. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. J.C. Ryle writes, we must not be ashamed to let all men see that we believe in Christ and serve Christ and love Christ and care more for the praise of Christ than for the praise of man. The difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. He's writing in the 1800s, even a little before social media. Even then, it was very great. It never was easy at any period. It will, be, it will never be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, and contempt, and mockery, and enmity, and persecution. The wicked dislike to see anyone better than themselves. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. Whether we like it or not, whether it be hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, we, Christ, must be confessed. So in contrast to the Pharisees who wanted to be applauded always for their faith. Oh, you're so religious. You're so godly. We serve a risen king who tells us, They mistreated me and they will mistreat you on account of me. Which should embolden us. It should empower our fear of God more than fear of man because we've come to expect it. But Jesus is not done. Notice verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There are two parts to verse 10 here. The first is that words spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
You remember that the Son of Man is, is a name from Daniel describing the Messiah to come, referring to Jesus. And so words spoken against the Messiah will be forgiven, which is what Jesus Ask the Father to do with his dying breath from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And again, we need to interpret the unclear by the clear. How does the Bible tell us that sinners receive forgiveness of sin? How? It's by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter goes out, preaches his very first sermon... The crowd is cut to the heart, convicted as the Holy Spirit transforms their heart, and they ask, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn from your unbelief and your sin to belief. Turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and publicly identify with Christ through the waters of baptism. And so how are we forgiven from words spoken against Jesus by repenting, by confessing our sin to the Father who, as Taylor read for us earlier, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or to put it another way that may be familiar to you, his steadfast love has made a way. And God himself has paid the price. That all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. But what is this about the second part of verse 10? That's probably what you came for this morning, like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin. What in the world is that? Maybe I've committed it. Maybe I didn't even know I committed it and I'll never be forgiven. Maybe I know I committed it, but I know now that it's unforgivable, and so does that mean I will never be forgiven? Like I'm on the blacklist forever in God's little black book. What does it mean? Two questions, I think, can help us understand what's going on in the second part of verse 10. First, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And secondly, why won't it be forgiven? So first, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's interesting throughout church history, There have been some different sort of thoughts on what that might be. Most of those are kind of on the periphery of Christian orthodoxy. Some have thought it was murder or adultery or taking God's name in vain or suicide. But we have examples of those kinds of categorical sins being forgiven in the Bible. And none of them fit the context here. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. It's seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and saying, that right there is Satan's work. Which is precisely what the Pharisees did in Luke chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus casts a demon out of a man. Now this man who was once mute is able to speak. And the Pharisees say, that's not the work of God. That's the work of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's a rejection of Jesus because we are rejecting his identity. We're rejecting the spirit within him doing these works. It's a suppression, according to Romans 1, of the truth in unrighteousness. 
But the bigger question here this morning is why won't blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be forgiven? Because that seems to fly in the face of everything that we read about in the Bible concerning forgiveness. It even seems to go against 1 John 1, 9 that's now been quoted like three or four times this morning. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of a little bit of unrighteousness. All but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so why won't blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be forgiven? The reason is it's not that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can't be undone. So if you have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you have rejected the truth about God, if you've seen God at work and said that's actually the work of Satan, if you've suppressed the true identity and saving power of Jesus, that sin is not unforgivable. The reason that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven is because if you die in your rejection of Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit's work in and through Jesus Christ, you will not be forgiven. It's not that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is somehow this special category of sin. Like all sin can be forgiven. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all but one unrighteousness. And that one unrighteousness is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you commit that, sorry, you know, like a lever opens and a trap door and you just go into the abyss. No. The reason it's unforgivable is because it is the sin of unbelief. And if you die in the sin of unbelief, you will spend eternity apart from God in hell because you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, the antidote, the fix, the solution to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he is not of Satan, but he actually is of God that the Holy Spirit did do miraculous works through him, that he did die on the cross and rise from the dead, and that as the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to see and softening your heart to see this glorious reality, you repent and believe. Jesus, I trust in you. I believe in you. You are the Son of God. You may have spent 40 years denying the Lord Jesus Christ suppressing the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ in unrighteousness, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And yet, if this morning you hear the voice of God, the Holy Spirit calling to you to trust and obey, to trust in Jesus Christ, to repent and believe, and this morning, by faith, you turn from unbelief to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful, and he is just. By the merits of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we just celebrated this morning, he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Christian, you do not need to live in fear. What if, what if I have, as a Christian, committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you have the Holy Spirit within you? 
You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your identity, as a Christian. You are hidden in Christ Jesus. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, you're wondering, well, you know what? I have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I know that I have. Friend, would you repent and believe this morning? Would you turn and trust in Jesus Christ this morning? There is incredible grace in Jesus Christ. More grace than any sin that you could have committed. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Which is why the only unforgivable sin is an unrepentant sin. Philip Ryken writes, the blood of Christ is sufficient for any sinner who truly repents, even a sinner who has previously denied the name of Christ. Let me say this once again. I've been accused of having the gift of repetition. (laughs) But it, it bears repeating this morning. If there is breath in your lungs right now, and I'm assuming for all of us there is, then nothing is unforgivable. Nothing. Come to him and find rest. Talk to someone around you afterwards. Come forward and talk to one of us after service this morning. Someone will be here, would love to talk to you, would love to pray with you. I'll be here, Nick will be here, Tara will be here, Rhonda will be here, Bethany will be here. There will be others who will be here who would love to talk to you, love to pray with you. Love to answer questions. Our final theme this morning of what it looks like to live in the fear of God is found in verses 11 and 12, and I'm just calling this opposition preparedness. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it's the best I could come up with. Opposition preparedness. Verse 11, the word of the Lord says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Notice the theme here. Again, it's not if you are called to give an account for your faith. It's when. And this bringing before synagogues and rulers and authorities is not so that they might award you a medal for like outstanding Christian of the year. It's to test you. It's to try you. It's to to try to poke holes in your faith. It's to try to intimidate you. It's to try to make you suffer for the cause of Christ. And yet Jesus reminds his followers then and his followers now that in those kinds of moments, we should not be anxious about how we should defend ourselves because the Holy Spirit will teach us in that very hour what we ought to say. It's as though Jesus doing, once again, what he did in verses 6 and 7, he, uh, he reveals a hard truth about, in verses 5, it was fear God who can kill and destroy in hell. And then he goes on to describe in 6 and 7, now let me tell you of the gracious joy that is found in living in the fear of God. And now, here in verse 10, he tells us 
that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And now, in verses 11 and 12, he reminds us of the incredible joy of the anxiety-killing freedom that comes in being led by the Holy Spirit and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that we do not fear, we are not anxious when we're called to give an account for our faith, when we're in situations where people are very hostile to our faith. Why? Because we're not alone. Because the helper, the paraclete who comes alongside the Holy Spirit is within us. And how does he teach us? Well, the primary way he teaches us today is he recalls to mind that which is in his holy word. You're trying to share the gospel or you're trying to give it a defense for your faith or you're trying to, to answer those who have oppositions or problems with your Christianity and you're thinking, okay, how do I do that? What, what sort of attitude should I have? What should my disposition be like? How should I answer? What sort of truth should I share? And then the Holy Spirit brings to mind something that you memorized with your D group like five years ago. Like, where did that come from? I can't remember what I ate yesterday for lunch. You remember a text of scripture that someone shared with you in an email earlier that week. You remember what you read in your time of worship that morning from the word. The Holy Spirit teaching us, reminding us what we ought to say. And this teaching happens morning by morning as we open God's word or night by night or whenever it is you open God's word regularly and you feed on God's word and you learn. Holy Spirit teaches how we are to respond. Not only what we are to say, but how we are to say it. It's the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. It's this opposition preparedness that the Holy Spirit does. And again, it's Jesus reminding us that the Holy Spirit is is not... Someone that we should be afraid of, but he is the third person of the Trinity that comes alongside. We should be incredibly grateful for that we should worship just as we worship the Father and the Son. That we might be prepared to give an account to anyone who asks. To do it with clarity, to do it with gentleness, to do it with conviction. Because we are not alone. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.